Well, Honda are best known for their front-wheel drive cars. Brett Dickey's prelude behind me has bucked that trend a little bit. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. Brett, when you decided to build this car, obviously the prelude comes from the factory looking nothing like what we've got behind us here and of course front wheel drive and it's definitely not powered by an F20 so what was the uh, impetus for this build? Oh, look the main reason we went down this way is for something aerodynamic to run in sports sedans obviously we don't want to go the way of like an Escort or, or something like a house brick um, we wanted to get some a little bit of aerodynamics behind it something that was always a bit of a wedge to help us through the air to start with and then um, obviously yeah feed some power into it and you're making a, a decent race car. So you're, you're a Honda guy through and through as well, so obviously the Honda was a sensible option there. Front wheel drive versus rear wheel drive, and there's proponents for both. What's, uh, what's your take on that? Oh look, I definitely like rear wheel drive, it's a lot easier to drive and I like a car that walks around. So the hardest thing about it is obviously when you're wheel spinning in a rear wheel drive car you're not moving forward, same as a front wheel drive car. So it makes it a little bit harder, but yeah, I do have a soft spot for rear wheel drive and it's definitely turned a few heads having a rear wheel drive prelude but I think for the class that we're in with sports sedans rear wheel drive was definitely the option to go. Just focusing a little bit on the driving aspect would it be fair to say in your opinion that a rear wheel drive car with, with a reasonable amount of power and a race application the driver input is a, a little bit more critical than front wheel drive? Yeah 100% I think it's um, in, in both cars you make your speed up in different areas like you've touched on and I think it's definitely easier to get a lap time out of a rear-wheel drive car and it's probably easier and, and more competitive doing it um, for 12 laps in a row in a rear-wheel drive car. So yeah, I think for the racing that we're doing and for the repetability of what we're doing, um, definitely rear-wheel drive is the way to go. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the chassis because as we can see, it, it is heavily modified essentially. Uh, looks like everything's been cut off forward of the firewall. So what was the, the sort of would you weigh up the decisions about whether you went tube frame like that, like you've done, or work with the, the factory chassis? And I guess there's some rules with your sports sedan class as well around that? Yeah, look, obviously there's rules in any class, but the main thing about it was obviously converting it to rear-wheel drive. It was a little bit harder than just um, bolting in another subframe. So we obviously went down the tube chassis way because we could run regularly available parts. So we run a Skyline diff. Rear uprights are 300 ZX, so all that sort of stuff was all in our mind when we're building the car to have parts regularly available. Last thing you want to do is build a car and you can't afford to buy the parts for it, or you can buy them once and you can never run the car either again. So we tried to incorporate as many off-the-shelf parts or or parts from the wreckers, if you say, so we can keep the car running. Yeah, and that makes sense. One of the the pros and cons I guess of, of cutting the front off and going tube frame like this is it gives you a, a huge amount of flexibility in your suspension geometry so you obviously get that right great get it wrong though and you could have an absolute dog on your hands and is it what's the process you went through there to sort of develop that geometry and, and actually test and prove it was going to work yeah well back in the early days me and my dad built the car and and we had a program called the Ross program really early um, it was back in the DOS program so we had to find a laptop to give us that information but it gave us the key points of 
obviously where our pickup points needed to be, give or take a little bit. And look, I'm not going to take all the credit for the way it is because my dad's done a hell of a lot of work on this car. But the, the hardest thing was, like you're saying, working out where to put the pickup points, if they would work, how long they would work for. The faster you go, the pickup point needs to change. So we've added in a lot of adjustability into the chassis as well. But yeah, it's one of those things we change all the time. So I can't say we've definitely got it right. I don't think there is any black and white right and wrong. It's uh, There's so much flexibility and a lot of it, of course, will come down to the car and the driver and what the driver's preferences are. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, the powertrain in the car. So F20, as we've already talked about, can you talk us through the, the options available and why you went F20? Yeah, look, at the time, um, back when we built the car, we we're going to go down the Peugeot WRC engine route. We had a couple of those offered to us at a reasonable price. But we don't know how long we could keep them running for and um, obviously the cost of keeping them running would have been another thing. So a friend of ours had um, an F20C sitting on the shelf and, and a couple of spares for it and, and it made sense at the time to go down that way because he was helping us with the R&D on that side of things. If we had to do it again, we'll probably go K-Series just to make it a little bit easier. Not many people carry parts for F-Series. And from what I understand, and I am not a Honda guru, but a, a lot of similarities between the F-20 and the K-Series. And of yeah. course, given that the F-20 only came out in the S2000, getting hold of those donor engines now is incredibly difficult and expensive versus a K-Series. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely hard. I think I'm the only person on Facebook at the moment that one pops up, I grab it straight away because it's not many times and now people know what they're worth. So back when we started this program, people were like literally throwing them outside for a thousand dollars. Now I think you can, it's cheaper to buy a car. But yeah, look, we're happy with our decision. It's a bit of a shock when people see an F-Series in there because they're expecting a K because that's all people know. But yeah, we've done a lot of R&D and we're pretty happy with where we're sitting with the F now. All right, well talk, talk to us about that engine combination. What, what have we actually got in it in terms of componentry? So we've always run standard cranks in all our engines. So we rev everything to 9,000 and factory Honda warranties 9,000. So standard cranks in this engine, we've got Eagle rods in this one. So we've done a deal with Eagle specialty products in the US. We've got Tron pistons in this and we still run factory F20C camshafts in it. So we found that we just picked up a little bit more in the mid range with the factory camshafts over some aftermarket camshafts. But look, it's all drivability. And when you're doing 12 laps in a row, you need that drivability to make it easier for yourself. I think it's easy for people to lose track of the fact that it's not just a peak power number that's always the most important thing and uh, the drivability and, and the area under the torque curve or the power curve really are, are just as important when when you want flexibility in the, in the rev range so I think that, that's sort of just as I say very easy for people to completely overlook and just go for that that big number on the dyno. In terms of the head itself Honda are, are probably known for some of the best flowing four cylinder heads uh, certainly in my experience anyway on the dyno. Uh, was there a requirement given your, your sort of aims to go any further with porting on the on the um, so the head on this was hand ported by David Flood. He did all the porting on it and it's one of those things, there's not much in there to move to start with so we didn't want to take too much out of it. We essentially just gave it a clean. I, I did look down the way of going billet cylinder heads and, and all those crazy contraptions but at the end of the day, it's a circuit car, it needs to keep running, it's all good to do one lap but we do it, we probably do 60 laps a weekend six times a year so we, we need to keep it running and we just run a factory head with a little bit of polishing work and and they seem to make the numbers we need. Well, let's talk about those numbers what sort of boost pressure you're running fuel and uh, what sort of power is it producing? So it runs on ethanol and boost numbers in in race trim we're probably running about 24 to 26 pound and pushing about 750 at the flywheel so it's, it's making decent numbers as we touched on just before we're trying to go the next step with the car now, so hopefully winding those numbers up, but obviously I don't want to 
creep the boost pressure up too high. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the new developments in a second, but before we move on to that though, another key element with uh, any race application is good oil control. Uh, obviously the uh, G-forces that the car is going to be seeing out on a racetrack are much higher than we ever see on the road, so what, what's the oiling system? Yeah, so we run a BDG dry sump tank and their pump that runs with it, so custom sump, my dad made all that as well, so... Back then, like I said, no one really done F-Series, so we were the pioneer and it didn't always work for us. But yeah, we built our own sumps and on the setup that we run on this car, the, the pump isn't mounted to the actual sump of the car like you see on a daily engineering kit. So it's all separate, it runs off where the water pump and alternator used to be, so there's a lot going on down there. But it's just one of those things, we, we had to make the parts to make it work because no one had them on the shelf. I think that's that's a really good point that you've just made there is that when you're choosing a platform to work with it is important to understand what sort of aftermarket support uh, is available because I mean of course you can always go and make your own parts and develop them but that is a, always a more expensive and time consuming route than something that you can buy off the shelf so uh, I mean all power to you there. You, you just mentioned about the dry sump pump not being mounted to the sump so I just want to touch on that just for those who maybe aren't understanding a lot of the uh, dry sump setup we see like daily engineering you mentioned the dry sump pump is integrated with the the sump which means that we don't need any external lines whereas you've mounted the pump off the engine block so the scavenge lines uh, have to run from the sump to the the pump yeah it looks like a bowl of spaghetti under there there's a lot of lines running around and that's probably the downside like saying it's for neatness of an engine bay you, you probably don't notice them as much standing here but yeah there's a lot of lines and definitely if I had my way again I'll do it differently but it's um at the time that's what we had Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. All right, let's move backwards from the engine. What's the transmission you've got behind it? Yeah, so we got a six-speed TTI from New Zealand. So we haven't had any any problems. Obviously, your normal day-to-day running costs, but it's it's been good. We're we're probably at the limit of what it, it can do, so... We just got to be careful when we're doing standing starts and launching at 6,000 RPM with a, a 300 rear tyre on it. We just got to be a little bit careful on that. But yeah, touch wood. I don't want to jinx it, but it's been pretty good. So you manu- manually shifted with that box and are you using a, a gear change cut or anything? Yeah. So we're using the motorsport services strain gauge. Look, it's it's made the car so much easier. It takes out, I'll put my hand up, takes out that driver error of it. You just pull the lever and off you go and... Yeah, it's a, it's a credit to those guys to make something so compact and have everything in the one gear knob. It just makes my life heaps easier. We use the same uh, gear knob on, on one of our own cars, and I mean, that's a control gear knob. I assume it's a control gear knob. You see it through every uh, supercar here in Australia. And uh, for those who maybe, again, aren't familiar with what we're talking about, uh, that just sends a signal to the ECU when you pull on that lever and that requests a, a gear shift, and then the ECU can induce a cut, either fuel, spark, or both, in order to unload the, the dogs in the gearbox and allow that shift to complete. All the while, you're flat on the throttle, so much faster shifts than if you needed to dip the clutch or even back off the throttle. Now, in in terms of the rear end, you've already mentioned there you've got that Skyline differential, and I'm guessing that that's pretty bulletproof at the power levels you're you're producing? Yeah, look, we haven't had any issues. Obviously, temperature's an issue um, when you're getting towards the end of a race, but we try to... um have as much ventilation going to it as possible so yeah like we said it's r200 diff center kaz lsds in all our diffs that we run uh, 300 zx uprights obviously a few little lugs cut off and moved to a different spot for our um, double wishbone suspension that we've made and yeah as as you'll see it's just it's all custom it's all custom fab and it's good and it's bad because if something happens we need to remake it all again so just touching on that you, you're running essentially sprint races you've sort of said 
12 laps or, yeah. or thereabouts. So no need to go to the extra complexity and weight of a diff cooler or a gearbox cooler for such short runs compared to if you're doing longer endurance style events. Oh look, we run um, run obviously a gearbox cooler just because we thought that was getting up where the range where we didn't really want it, and obviously the the gearbox is hugged by the exhaust, so that makes that a bit warmer. But the diff isn't really at that point yet. I reckon when we start winding some more power into it, I reckon we're going to get there. But right at the moment, I think we're just at the comfortable stage. Right, let's talk about the electronics package in the car. So what, what have you got controlling the, the engine and what are you using for logging, driver displays, etc.? So we run a Mtron KV8 ECU that's running obviously all the engine management side of things with a CDL Motec dash with full logging, GPS logging and, and all the um, kit and caboodle those guys designed. So it's a bit of mix of both worlds in there, but it's one of those things we tried to give the car as, as much as we could in electronics package without spending a gazillion dollars. Uh, I'm just interested there, you've got the ability with uh, the Mtron to log into the ECU. Uh, obviously you can log all of the ECU parameters in the MoTeC dash as well and you've got the ability to add additional sensors as you see fit. So are you using the logging in both or are you using one as a central hub essentially? Obviously we're using, we're using both but for two different things. So obviously personally I'll use the MoTeC for the driving side of things and the boys that take care of my engines and obviously the Mtron guys will, will worry about the logging from the Mtron. So we try to keep them separate, we keep them on two separate laptops in case something happens but yeah the, the MoTeC sort of my thing and we leave the Mtron to the, um, the propeller heads down the end there. Uh, that, that makes total sense. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the changes that you've made and unfortunately we're, we're sort of talking to you maybe a, a week too yeah. soon. Uh, you've changed Turbo and you've made some other changes so can you, you tell us what has changed? Yeah so um, from last year's car we've uh, obviously got a fresh engine which always makes things nice. We've done a, a bit of a deal with Garrett um, in the US so we're now running the new G35 900 um, so it's a step up from the 3076 that we were running so we had a Gen 2 3076 so yeah really really excited to see what the differences are there. We've heard great reviews and obviously Garrett's stand behind their product so that should be really cool. We've gone to a drive-by-wire blower valve just to help with some bit of our torque management programs that we're running through the Mtron. We're now running our new TurboSmart eGate so that's that's pretty cool. It's a new product as you I think you've done some reviews on as well. It's, it's a new product on the market and, and hopefully it works the way we want it to and obviously we're, we're now running exhaust pressure and we've now got map sensors pre and post throttle body so we're just trying to give it trying to give the the ECU as much information as possible so we can get the most out of it. So in terms of that, obviously the, the more data we have uh, in a way that's great but it can also become overwhelming. You've mentioned torque management there which has become a bit of a, a hot topic around World Time Attack particularly over the last few years and uh, Scott from Mtron has been working really hard on that aspect. Talk to us as a driver, what does that actually mean and, and what are you wanting the ECU to do for you to make your job easier and be able to get better lap times? Yeah, look, from, from a lot of cars and a lot of ECUs that I've driven in the past is the traction control, people either get it amazing or it's real aggressive. And and I, I don't think I've actually had a an ECU that I thought the traction control was really super smooth. So we're running the the torque management in the elusive car this weekend and to be honest I actually thought that the boys turned the boost down on me because I couldn't actually work out what was going on in the car but it's a crazy feeling didn't know what was going on and and for an ECU to be controlling that all for you I can't wait to put it into this because this this car just fries tyres and and about six laps into a 12 lap race I'm already thinking about what I'm going to get the next set of tyres from so uh, yeah I think it's going to be beneficial for for not just this car but everyone in the future as well. 
Now, just talking about that e-gate as well, the flexibility, of course, there is uh, you don't need to change uh, wastegate springs and you've got a lot more control over the range of boost pressure. So uh, can I assume from that that you're relying pretty heavily on gear or speed-dependent boost control? Yes, correct. So in this car, we, we run our gear-dependent boost control. It may change when we when we sort of get it into the window where we can start doing speed, but it's just a little bit hard because if it breaks in the wheel spin, your speeds are a little bit different, your locker brake, it might freak out. So right at the moment, we're just doing it by gear position. And, and obviously being a six-speed, there's a lot of... A lot of different strategies that can go into that but yeah hopefully um like you're saying with with the e-gate it, it knocks out a few things that we don't need to worry about with with boost solenoids and things like that and hopefully everything's a little bit more streamlined uh, one other aspect i'm interested in uh, with turbochargers they're, they're really really good at making boost so once you get to 100 percent throttle and you're at 24 psi boost or whatever it happens to be as you back off the throttle to maybe reduce the engine torque quite often you actually have to back a long way out of the throttle before the boost will will actually drop enough to make too much difference are you incorporating throttle position based boost targets as well or is it just purely gear no so it's definitely throttle based as well so there's i think for memory off the top of my head don't quote me i think there's three calculations that will work into our boost strategy per so i think it's rpm throttle position and also it'll be in gear as well so there's a lot going on there i won't comment too much onto that because um, i know i'll probably get it wrong Fair enough. Look, Brett, it's been uh, great to get some insight into the car. Uh, unfortunately, again, uh, maybe a week too soon. I'd really be interested, given that we also run the uh, GTX 3076 Gen 2 on our own car back home. be really interested to hear how that G35 900 compares, but maybe we'll have to touch base once it's been on the dyno and see. Thanks for your time. No problems, thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to help us getting the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe. It's a one-stop shop when it comes to going faster, stopping quicker and cornering better.